Thank you so much, John, for that prayer. I appreciate it. Today we are going to share the Lord's Supper together as the people of God. Before we do that, we will continue on in our study of the Gospel of John. We're going to look this morning at the Gospel of John, chapter 9, and verses 13 through 23. The Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 13 through 23. If you are watching right now by live stream, uh, not only are we glad to have you with us, but don't worry if you're sitting at home and you don't have a Bible. Uh, that's all right. Um, you will be able to follow along. Most of the verses will be on the screen, and I think you'll easily be able to follow. Last week, we started John chapter 9. And if you recall, I shared with you that we not only went to a new chapter, but we come to a new section in the Gospel of John. And we saw last week that Jesus miraculously, amazingly healed a man who had been blind from birth, a man who had lived his entire life in darkness. And Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with saliva, anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and he washed, and the Bible says he came back seeing. When it says he came back seeing, it means they had perfect vision. He went from complete darkness to having perfect vision. His whole life had changed. It was such a great miracle that those who had known this man for all of his life could hardly believe it was him. And some were saying, it's not really him, it's just someone like him. And he said, no, it's me, it's me. And they said, how did it happen? And he simply said, it was the man called Jesus. Well, that brings us to verses 13 through 23. Let me read those for you this morning. It says, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Now, as we look at the Gospel of John chapter 9, there are actually four parts to it, and today we are looking at part two. So we are looking at part two of four parts of this particular chapter. And our first point this morning is another Sabbath controversy. The miraculous healing of the man born blind, rather than bringing praise to God, results in an angry confrontation with the Pharisees. So rather than this bringing glory to God, it just brings another angry confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders. 
In verse 13, it says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. This was such a great miracle. They don't know what to do with it. And so they take the man and they bring him to the Pharisees. They knew the Pharisees opposed Jesus. They knew the Pharisees wouldn't be happy about this. So they bring him to the Pharisees to see what they will say. Now, in verse 14, there is a very important piece of information for this context. It says, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So it was a Sabbath day. And we see if you work through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you work through them, you will see that Jesus often healed on a Sabbath day. And I believe there was a specific reason why he often healed on the Sabbath. And that was because he wanted to directly confront the Pharisees and other religious leaders with the truth that they had distorted and totally maligned the biblical purpose and reason for the Sabbath day. So I think he is taking the argument to them because it was so essential for them to understand this correctly. This is not the first time we have seen this in the Gospel of John. We saw this in chapter 5. In chapter 5, Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda There is a man there lying there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Jesus simply walks up to him, says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And the man was instantaneously and miraculously healed, leading to this confrontation with the Pharisees and religious leaders. In John chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, we read, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now watch verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now and I am working. Verse 17, if you remember from chapter 5, is very important. My father is working until now, and I am working. I want you to understand the biblical purpose and reason for the Old Testament Sabbath. The reason for the Sabbath was for people to do good. It was. The reason that God instituted the Sabbath, yes, it was a time where you weren't supposed to do normal, everyday work. It was for that. You were not to go about the daily buying and selling and trading that you would normally go about. You weren't supposed to go out in your field and work. That was true. Sabbath means rest. It was supposed to be a day of rest for you. But it didn't mean that you would cease from doing good. On the contrary, the Sabbath was designed by God for you to do good. For his people to do good. They were to visit the sick, help the poor, minister to others, help others in need. That was the very purpose of the Sabbath day. It was to bring glory to God. And when Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working, he means God is always doing good. When it comes to doing good, God never takes a day off. Aren't you glad for that? There are no days off from doing good, for caring about you, from ministering to you on God's part. My father is always, or my father is working until now, and I 
am working. But the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders had taken this wonderful, beautiful truth of the Sabbath and made it this legalistic, man-made tradition where you couldn't do anything. You couldn't do anything. You couldn't heal on the Sabbath. That's why they're angry with Jesus. You couldn't make mud on the Sabbath. He was working on the Sabbath. And so when we come to verse 15, it says, So the Pharisees again asked him, the man who was healed, how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and they washed, and I see. Now I believe, personally, though this healed man does not know a lot at this point. I think he's like filled with the Holy Spirit. He's, he's bold. He's honest. I just love it in his innocence. There was none of the cynicism and sarcasm that sometimes happens to people as they grow older. He's just innocent in his love for Jesus and what he had done for him. And it says, notice, so the Pharisees again asked him. They'd already asked him and he'd already told them. So he tells him again, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. But notice in verse 16, the first part, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. That was the prevalent thought, especially among the Jewish religious leaders. It was like a syllogism. You were not to do anything on the Sabbath. This man healed on the Sabbath, made mud on the Sabbath. Therefore, he is not from God. He is not from God. But, we read, but others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And as you read through this, it appears the division was among the Pharisees themselves. Some of them were saying, how can a sinner do a great miracle like is claimed to have been done here with this man who could now see. So, in verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet, which is the right answer, a good answer. It is something you wouldn't say about Jesus in front of the Pharisees, not at this time, but he's not afraid to say it. He opened my eyes. I was blind from birth and now I can see. Only God can do a miracle like that. This man is from God, therefore he is a prophet of God. And so he says to the Pharisees, he is. He is a prophet. Now the Jewish religious, excuse me, the Jewish religious leaders are so opposed to Jesus that they refuse to believe that he healed the man or that the healed man was actually born blind and that he had received his sight. So now, after all this, they're wondering, I wonder if he really was born blind. I wonder if this was just put on. I wonder if this is all some kind of trick or game. I wonder if he's really, or was really, blind. So look at verses 18 and 19. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he see? So they go and they get the parents. Okay, we want to know from you, is this your son, and was he blind? Now I want you to understand something 
folks this morning. It's hard for us to understand. You got called before the Pharisees. That was a big deal. I mean, you would go in fear and trembling. I mean, these guys were incredibly well-educated, much more than the common people. They hold all kinds of power and sway in their community. And all of a sudden, these parents of the blind men get dragged before the Pharisees, and they want to know, is this your son, and was he born blind? Now watch what happens in verses 20 and 21. His parents answered, we know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Now his parents, I believe, and we're going to see this clearly in the context here. They did know how their son's eyes was open, and they did know who did it, but they weren't going to tell the Pharisees. They were afraid to tell the Pharisees. I believe their son had told them exactly how he was given sight, but it would have been a bold thing on their part to say this to the Pharisees, so this is what they do. We know how he sees, excuse me, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. And so they basically say, kind of shove their son forward, ask him, he is of age, he'll speak for himself. They're not going to say, not before the Pharisees. And that brings us to our second point this morning, the fear of man. The healed man's parents are so afraid of the Jewish leaders that they refuse to stand up for and defend their own son. They are so intimidated by these Jewish religious leaders that they refuse to stand up for and defend their own son. Now watch what it says in verses 22 and 23. It says, His parents said these things. What things? They had just said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. And then it says, his parents said these things. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said he is of age. Ask him. I want you to understand here. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the teachers of the law were leading and ruling the people, ruling the synagogue by fear and intimidation. That's how they ruled, by fear and intimidation. And I want you to know this morning that any synagogue or any church where the leadership Rules by fear and intimidation, it is a bad thing. It is always a bad thing. They had put out the word. They had put out the word that if anyone should confess, if anyone should even say that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So what do the parents do? They cop out. They act cowardly. They won't even defend and stand up for their own son. But before we're too hard on them, we need to understand what it means to be put out of the synagogue. At this time in history, in this particular 
nation and city, the city of Jerusalem, it was huge to be put out of the synagogue. The technical term is unsynagogued. If you were unsynagogued at this time, you would be cut off from all of your family and friends. They wouldn't associate with you. They wouldn't socialize with you. If you got unsynagogued, it would have devastating economic impact on your family and life. They wouldn't sell to you. They wouldn't buy from you. They wouldn't trade with you. If you were unsynagogued, you lost all of your religious privileges. You couldn't go to synagogue, obviously. You couldn't partake in the religious festivals and traditions. And for the average Jewish person who feared the Jewish leadership, they, meant, they thought it meant that God would no longer bless them, that they would be cut off from the blessing of God. So they were afraid. They were afraid of these men. It reminds us of that famous verse in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25 where it says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Some translations have the fear of man as a trap. And it is. It's a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now we're going to end this particular section here. But I want us to think together for a little bit here this morning about the fear of man. Fear of man is powerful. In all of our lives, it is powerful. The fear of man is one of the greatest obstacles to the spread of the gospel and growth in our own Christian life. It is. The fear of man is one of the greatest obstacles to the spread of the gospel and growth in all of our Christian lives. Every single person here, every person here, and that includes me, has at one time or another. We haven't spoken or witnessed as boldly for Christ as we could have or should have. We haven't lived out our Christian faith as fully as we could have or should have. Because we were afraid of what someone might say or they might think, or what they might do. This is true all around the world. We hear this from our missionaries all the time, especially those who work in Islamic countries. When someone comes to Christ in a closed country, it costs them a lot. Just like the parents, it would have cost them. In an Islamic nation, for example, you come to Christ, you'll be ostracized from your family and friends. They just won't associate with you. There's a good chance you will lose your job. You'll be fired from your job. Your whole life will change. It will never be the same again. But let's think about us. Let's think about us. I want you to know that every person here, and again, that includes me, every person here fears someone or some group. If anyone ever walks up to you and says kind of arrogantly, I don't care what people think, they're not being honest with you. They're not being truthful. Everybody, everybody fears somebody. We all do. Could be a peer group, 
It doesn't matter whether you're 16 or 66. Everybody fears somebody. We all do. Could be your peer group, could be your coworkers, could be your neighbors, could be your extended family members, could be somebody else. But I want to share with you this morning how you overcome the fear of man. I want to share with you this morning what I believe to be the biblical way that you can overcome the fear of man. But before I tell you how to do it, I'm going to tell you how not to do it. Okay? The way you don't overcome the fear of man is by shaking your fist and just saying, I'm going to be courageous. I'm going to be a courageous man. I'm going to be a courageous woman. I'm going to be bold for Jesus. When you start saying things like that, you start relying on you. You start relying on yourself. I don't care what kind of tough guy you think you are. I don't care what kind of tough girl you think you are. That's not how you overcome the fear of man. But I'm going to tell you how to overcome it. Here's how you overcome the fear of man. And I think, and I believe it's spread throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. You overcome the fear of man by having a deep, passionate love for Jesus. That's how you overcome the fear of man. It is. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and you will overcome the fear of man. This man who had been healed, his parents feared the Pharisees more than they loved God. They feared the Pharisees more than they loved God. Think of it this way. Take a young man, and a young woman, and they fall in love. I mean, they really fall in love. They are so in love with each other. They would do anything for each other. They would protect each other. They would defend each other. Because their love is so strong. You take a parent, a good parents, and their love for their children. Man, they love their children. They would do anything for their children. They would protect for them and provide for them in any way they possibly can. They would even be willing to die for their children because they love them so much. That's the kind of love we need to have for Jesus. This passionate, fervent, deep love for him. So, only a passionate love for God can cause you to overcome the fear of man. We're going to go to communion. And you pray and meditate at this time. I want you to remember Jesus died for you. He rose from the dead for you. He is the sole source of your salvation. He watches over you each and every day. Ask God to give you a deep, passionate love for him. A deep, passionate love for Jesus that so overcomes the fear of man that you're no longer worried about what people think or say or do because your love is so strong.
Well, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. And if you happen to be visiting for the first time this morning, I want to be sensitive to you. Give you a few instructions. One deacon is just going to pray for the bread and the cup. And then the deacons are going to walk out to you. They will give you the bread and cup together. If for some reason you're not comfortable taking communion yet, that's okay. You don't have to. When everyone has been served, I will read a passage of scripture and then we will eat and drink together. If you're watching by live stream this morning, while the deacons are serving communion, we want to encourage you in your homes to use this as a time of meditation and reflection. In a sense, your own communion time of meditation and reflection. At this time, we will share the Lord's Supper together.